This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a range of issues from my comic book collection, which I will often select at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 116th episode of the Quarterman Podcast, we're taking one more look at Jack Kirby's work here in the centennial of his birth. Six episodes back, we looked at an issue of The Eternals, and here we are moving forward in time just a few years to when the king was working in the world of independent comics. For this episode, we will be covering Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, issues 1, 2, and 3 from Pacific Comics, cover dated November 1981, January and March 1982. This is, in fact, the first title ever produced by Pacific Comics. But first, a little feedback. Sir... Sir Martin of Grey commented on the milestone coverage from the last couple of episodes, specifically the first book, Blood Syndicate. I don't like this one. Too urban badass for me. I did like the Icon series, though. My big problem with Milestone was actually their coloring process, which they went on about as if it was the second coming. It looked amateurish to me. And the Milestone episodes brought out our old friend Manuel Carmona, the man behind Truthful Comics and the Comics for Christmas charitable initiative. Haven't written in a while, but today I had to. Blood Syndicate is quite possibly the biggest reason why I became a comic book fan in the first place. And the reason leads me to write you this morning, the dude holding two machine guns? He's not African-American, he's Puerto Rican. Being a Puerto Rican myself, it blew my mind that there was a Puerto Rican character in a comic book. And not only that, he's the leader of the team. Tech Nine is still one of my favorite characters. You should continue to cover these issues in the future, Professor. Thanks for shining a light on one of the greatest comic lines ever. I will revisit Manuel, I will especially after the disappointment of Cobalt. I definitely will talk about more of the good ones, like that first issue of Blood Syndicate. And thank you for reminding me the value of representation. Derek Coward from the comic book Noise Feed also commented that a number of characters in Blood Syndicate were Latinx. And then going back and forth with him, he pointed out that the two gangs that merged to form Blood Syndicate were a Puerto Rican gang and an African-American gang, which I realized at that point did explain a lot of the conflict that Tech 9 and Holocaust had with each other. He then went to the Cobalt episode. I have the first issue of Cobalt, but while listening to your recap, I realized that I must have stopped after that one. I don't remember any of the characters besides Cobalt. I commented that that's when they went full 90s, and Derek added, Like you said, they were heading towards the end of their lifetime. And at that point, 
you'll try to grab for anything to survive. Derek also said some generally nice things about the show and relatively geeky. Appreciate that, buddy. I really do. Derek has been a terrific podcaster for a long, long time. And the great Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, both on the Two True Freaks Network, sent a nice note of encouragement about getting caught up on quarterbin episodes. All really good episodes, Professor, which have really livened up my commutes and afternoon walks. He also pointed out the connection that the character of Dakota North had with Luke Cage, saying that it was from the Cage series that I covered, in his words, quote, many moons ago on the Quarterbin podcast. And then he commented about Blood Syndicate specifically, but early Milestone more generally. Milestone, especially early Milestone, says Luke, is always a good, cheapy bin pickup. Thanks for all the enjoyable episodes and looking forward to everything coming down the pipeline. Thank you, Luke. Agree on Milestone being some pretty good cheap pickups. Raining Listener of the Year, Dr. Ange, commented that he was looking forward to the Captain Victory books, having found most of them in the Buck Box up there in Boston. They are wild, almost unfettered in concept. No pressure, Ange. No pressure. Keep listening, and you'll find out what I thought of them. Likes and retweets and shares for that last episode came from many of the fine folks we've mentioned so far this episode, and also from Pat Sampson of the Long Box Crusade, Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, Chris Willette from Bizarre Manor, Mike Carlisle from the Crap Box of the Son of Cthulhu blog, and Laurel at Mountainflower1. Thank you all for that. Always appreciate the feedback and the social media love. But now, let's get to today's issues. Captain Victory, numbers 1, 2, and 3 each had cover prices of $1, meaning I got these comics a nice 75% markdown off that original list price. These three books were among the 67 that I plucked from the quarter bins last fall at the Akron Comic-Con. These three books do tell one ongoing story, so I'm going to do all the summaries together here, uh, one at a time in this first section. The cover of issue number one by Jack Kirby shows, to be honest, a pretty typical Jack Kirby bull-cut blonde man with two big, and I mean really, really big, Kirby tech weapons firing rays uh, past us off the edge of the page. We are promised new, exciting, original, and forces from the Star Worlds clash on Earth. It is eye-catching, and there is no doubt who drew this cover. The story in issue one, just titled Captain Victory and His Galactic Rangers, was created, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby, lettered and inked by Mike Royer. And we begin with this. If our vast universe spawns an infinite variety of planets and men, it must also breed special dangers, which only a force unique in purpose and method can deal with. Where this force arrives, a saga begins. The blonde guy from the cover, Captain Victory, 
is addressing his crew ordering another computer check on a nearby system. What we're looking at may be a serious breach of galactic law. His right-hand man, Clavis, delivers Captain Victory another analysis. It's the same analysis he's delivered five times already. The planet, Talent 4, once the home of peaceful, industrial beings, is now a great, ugly, planetary hive. When the enemy is through with this world, it will orbit its sun like a cold and empty shell. They decide they have to act, but not as hotheads. We do this in the orderly tradition of the Galactic Rangers. The captain puts on a helmet type of device, a portable command post of Kirby-rific design. Despite the fact that the enemy and their female leader hates Captain Victory's guts, he heads to the bridge to lead the battle. His command team plead with him not to go to the bridge, the most vulnerable place on the ship where the enemy assault is directed. Clavis tells him, if you don't leave, we'll risk court-martial and drag you off the bridge. Got that? The enemy does attack in a concentrated effort on the ranger's vessel, and the captain does, in fact, take a very bad hit. Like, very, very bad, like maybe he's dead. Clavis takes temporary command and orders all batteries to step up to rapid fire. Pour it on those assault ships. A deadly fusillade of kill power is hurled into space at their relentless attackers. The beams strike with uncanny accuracy, and enemies die by the score. The cold vacuum of space is soon littered with the debris of battle. On the enemy ship, a woman who can only be described as having a huge circular frame of hair around her face, a classic Kirby look, orders her forces to blast off. They will leave the planet behind for the rangers to destroy, pulling up stakes to find a new home. What we seek is a home well hidden from the guns of that ranger ship. I'll take this ship to a solar system beyond the reach of galactic law. The Lightning Lady locates a suitable planet, and they are on their way, on to conquest, and the beginning of a new era for our kind, the Insectons. Meanwhile, in the sick bay of the giant ranger vessel, the Tiger, the mortally wounded Captain Victory lives again. The medics explain that thanks to the memory storage unit, they've transferred his identity into a new body. But Clavis is worried. This is the tenth. He'll soon run out of clones. One of the medics replies that heroes used to only die once. But in this day of identity transfer and plentiful clones, our idols can die with magnificent regularity. Clavis explains to Captain Victory what happened after his death. We drove a few back to the hive, but no sign of the Lightning Lady's whereabouts. Captain Victory knows what this means. The Insectons never change tactics. They fight and die to cover the escape of their hive leader. The Galactic Rangers tend to the terrible task of destroying the infested planet. And then with the help of Mastermind, 
they track the Lightning Lady. Mastermind is an egg-headed type of being in a wondrously Kirby Tech floating chair thing. And his advice goes a bit beyond his role of being a human calculator. And he is scolded by Captain Victory for overstepping his bounds. They locate the next target planet and head that direction. Somewhere out there, Clavis says, the planet we saw is orbiting its sun without an inkling of what's in store for it. And then we move to the planet in question, where Captain Victory is talking to a law enforcement official on that planet. And then, in a glorious two-page spread, the Galactic Ranger ship appears overhead, blasting into the hills of this planet. That hill overlooks Highway 41, north of Spartanville, Colorado. Next, don't miss Death Hive USA. End of Issue 1. The cover of Issue 2 by Jack Kirby and Michael Thibodeau shows Captain Victory and a sheriff both looking at a strange alien being. Let's have it, spaceman, the sheriff asks. What is that, that thing? Captain Victory answers. The beginning of mass terror, sheriff. Across the top of the cover, we read, When its citizens suddenly vanish, a small town becomes Death Hive USA. The story in issue two, which doesn't seem to have a title, so I'm just going with Death Hive USA, was created, written and penciled by Jack Kirby, lettered and inked again by Mike Royer. The inside front cover shows what appears to be an alternative cover with Captain Victory and a few of his rangers on the small town street. We pick up the action at the exact moment at the end of the first issue with Captain Victory and the sheriff staring up at the huge spacecraft. The sheriff says that's the biggest thing he's ever seen in the sky and wonders if Captain Victory belongs to that giant gym crack. Correction, sheriff. I command that gym crack. And in a manner of speaking, we're in the same business you're in. And one of the dangers we follow has come to your planet. The sheriff is trying hard to believe the alien he's just met, but doesn't want to think that outer space is based on the same old game of cops and robbers as here on Earth. The sheriff and Captain Victory head to the morgue to see a victim of a recent shooting to check if that's really what it was. The insectons have already begun building their hive on Earth, but the rangers ambush them. But they know that time is not on their side. Clavis says that they have to isolate the hive and destroy it before enlargement gets underway. I'm frankly not optimistic about this planet's chances for survival. At the morgue, we see that the shooting victim has turned into the alien type of creature on the cover. The workers wonder if the being has a contagious disease, but Captain Victory explains that it's worse than that. He is the contagion. His very presence on this planet is evidence that a hive has been established here. He explains the facts of the situation. The Insecton Society is ruled by what we call a lightning lady and guided by a regent. You Earthmen shot the regent. 
the godfather of the hive. And then before their very eyes, the regent disapparates. And Captain Victory explains more. I, Captain Victory, command the starship Tiger of the Galactic Ranger Force. The Insectons bring out the Absorber Machine, a bizarre creation which erupts with strange pulsating eaves that spread with sinister rapidity. The unsuspecting populace of Spartanville has little time to find anything amiss until the waves have saturated the town with their presence. The townsfolk are led out to the surrounding hills by the Insectons. Only a few of them are able to reject the power of the mind waves, but those people are quickly killed. The vast majority of the townspeople become drones for the hive. Their queen, Lightning Lady, arrives, ready to expand the hive and strengthen it. The rangers won't dare threaten us while these hostages are in our hands. Captain Victory introduces the sheriff to the rest of his team, Gunnery Officer Terran, Special Services Orca, and Major Clavis. They agree that the tiger can't hit the hive with the strong stuff, not while there are hostages. But their negative energy beam does seem to contain the hive, but the lightning lady orders her human drones to try to breach it, and they die in the effort. Other insectons also follow their queen's commands, and their bodies pile up. Inside the hive, the queen realizes what has happened, but she's patient, waiting for something to hatch. The forerunner of a new type of insecton will be able to grow an army of his kind. In the lull, the sheriff heads into town to inform higher authorities what is happening out in the hills. This allows the rangers to talk among themselves, and they're pretty pessimistic, to be honest, about Earth's chances. Nevertheless, we stay and fight. That's an order. Next, thousands of secrets of the galaxy revealed. A thousand thrills when Earth battles its first intergalactic enemy. A thousand insights into the motivations of people, not of our world. Look for encounters of a savage kind. End of Issue 2. The cover of Issue 3 by Jack Kirby shows Captain Victory and Lightning Lady, pretty small actually, before a huge green-tusked monster thing, which is busting through a brick wall way cooler than the Kool-Aid Man is on his best day. Across the top of the cover, we read, To save our Earth, he dared to seize the Mother of Horrors. The story in Issue 3, Encounters of a Savage Kind, was created, written, and penciled by Jack Kirby, lettered and inked this time by Michael Thibodeau. The Insectons have landed on Earth. They are a ruthless, implacable force with the instinct to conquer. A few of the rangers wonder if it's even worth defending Earth as the planet is well out of the heavily populated galactic areas. But Captain Victory disagrees. They're going to get their cosmic education the hard way. But we'll stand with them and let them know that the galaxy breeds friendship and courage as well as danger.
He calls the ship for a Code 3 assault on the huge dreadnought Tiger. Special equipment is assigned to the troops. Will do, sir. The light infantry is on its way down. Again, the captain is advised to get out of the area of the attack, but again, he does not play it safe. They discover the townsfolk in mid-transformation. Nothing but bloated sacks of fluid. The sheriff sees this, and is sickened, and angered. I say kill them. Kill them all! As the finest troops in the galaxy set foot on Earth, Mastermind is upset that he can't join the forces. But it's galactic law that he can't be risked. You know that you're officially listed as a cosmic enigma, meaning that the mission could be scrapped if he's endangered. Okay. Meanwhile, deep within the hive, Lightning Lady witnesses as something huge stirs within the giant incubation chamber. The green horde monster from the cover is fully grown. This is the largest of our kind I've yet dared to create. For weeks, I've poured life energy into his gestation chamber, and I've given him only one directive. To kill. KILL! He tears into the walls of the hive, crashing into view behind Captain Victory and his team, and they fight back, a disruptive fusillade concentrated on the huge snapping maw, which can swallow a regiment with little difficulty. Enraged by the attack, the huge insecton lunges forward. Captain Victory's men stand fast in the face of this terrifying charge. Then their lines slowly break. The men are seized and flung about. The air is filled with screams from sources of severe pain. When all hope seems lost, a new weapon is fired from behind the Galactic Rangers, and the big ugly monster is frozen. It wasn't really a weapon but it was a mental projection by Mastermind, which changed the animal's mental programming from kill to cold. And Captain Victory is none too pleased. They argue about disobeying commands and Mastermind being the last of his race, but before he's disciplined, Mastermind tells Captain Victory that to win this mad game, they have to find and capture the Lightning Lady. They find the evil Insecton Queen surrounded by the children of the town as hostages. And again, it's the egg-shaped mastermind who saves the day. And all of a sudden, the Lightning Lady doesn't think she's surrounded by children, but by that big, ugly green monster instead. In her fear, Captain Victory scoops her up her electronic stings minimized into harmlessness by, again, our true hero of the issue, Mastermind. Lightning Lady threatens Captain Victory, telling him he will die hard for this. The Insectons have ways of making an enemy plea for death. But the head of the Rangers is not scared. What do you Insectons do when butchery gets to bore you? And as they're getting ready to clear the battlefield, on the last panel of the last page, the Rangers are interrupted. The U.S. military has arrived, and they want to know what the heck is going on down here. End of Issue 3. 
whenever there's trouble, G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro, fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe is there. Attention, Joes, this is General Hawk. I have an important mission for you. I need you to listen to G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. It's a monthly podcast for Aaron Moss... And two other Joes will be reporting on the comic book G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Previously published by Marvel, currently being published by IDW Comics. We'll also cover the special missions, the yearbooks, order battles, etc. To hear their message, report to gijoe.headspeaks.com or iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Dismissed. Now we know! And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! And we're back. Pacific Comics wanted to launch its line of comics with a bang and offered Jack Kirby complete ownership of whatever he might create for them. This had been a long-time concern for Kirby. His departure from Marvel was at least somewhat over frustrations that included Marvel's industry-standard assertion of full ownership to Fantastic Four, X-Men, and other hits that he'd made for them. But the only other major comic book company remaining was DC, and they followed the same industry practices at the time, and asserted ownership for Commandy and the Demon and all the Fourth World characters. Now, Pacific's offer to Kirby very closely aligned with practices in book publishing, prose publishing. In that industry, authors generally retain ownership of their work. They contract to the publisher certain rights, This is just one of the many ways the comic book publishing differs from its big sibling, regular traditional publishing, and usually for the worse in terms of how comics treats creators, again, as opposed to traditional prose publishing. So, believe it or not, John Grisham makes a lot of money when his books are turned into movies, or George R.R. Martin, or any of them many other books or book series that have been turned into TV shows. That's just the way most of the publishing industry works. Now, successful novelists, you may have noticed, do dabble in comics every now and then, but I personally am not surprised when they don't stick around the industry for very long. And conversely, when comic book writers are able to make the switch to writing novels, often they stick with that rather than coming back to comics. It's just that among all the opportunities that writers have for making a career for themselves, living wage, comic books might be the worst of those options in terms of the financing and the rights and all of that. So Jack Kirby, realizing that this offer from Pacific was the best he'd ever get in the comic book world, took it and fleshed out the concepts for Captain Victory. He thought of the characters in this world in the mid-70s, when he considered launching his own line of comics with it. Again, that would be a way to retain for himself the rights or graphic novel treatments or even possible animated TV series, that sort of thing. And it took more than a quarter century for comic book companies, not the big two, 
to offer the kinds of deals that Pacific did in 1981 and also stay in business. This is basically the current image model, and it's some of the way other indie presses work, which is why Robert Kirkman has made lots and lots of money from The Walking Dead, which is why Jack Kirby did not make a lot of money from Captain America movies or Hulk and S.H.I.E.L.D. TV shows. Now, in terms of these three comics, I did want to mention one feature. The inside cover of issue one is a long prose piece that talks about Jack Kirby, his life, his career, and why Pacific is so pleased to have him on their roster. They refer to him as the undisputed king of comic book artists and mention his newspaper work in the 30s, creating Captain America, doing the romance books in the late 50s, the Marvel Age, the New Gods, and also his movement into animation. And it ends with this. He is currently back in comics, chronicling the adventures of his latest characters, Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. So let's talk about these latest characters of Kirby. And there's a lot to like here. An organization of space cops. And although we get a few hints of the greater structure and organization and code of the Galactic Rangers, we don't get a lot of info about the organization, which is obviously similar to the Green Lantern Corps. I do like that Earth is out of their jurisdiction, out here on the outskirts of the civilized universe. So this is a huge, big idea uh, at the core of the book. Now, I say that we do actually get a little bit about the Galactic Rangers organization, and that's because issue one has a four or five page backup about how Clavis joined the group. So there's a few pages of backstory to the Rangers, but not a lot. Now, I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but Clavis, the right-hand man, is a dark-skinned humanoid. In terms of bonus features, the second issue had a couple of pages of sketches where we get details on the small arms in the Galactic Ranger arsenal, the Ranger combat suits, Galactic military insignias, and then a range of character sketches. And in terms of that main character, Captain Victory, there's also another big idea, and that is the unlimited or maybe limited, we don't totally know for sure, but the, that number of clones that are available to him. Obviously, this choice has the major drawback dramatically of limiting the inherent risk of putting your main character fear that he might die. Unless at some point there are issues with the clones or they run out, that, that may have been part of what that one plot point was about he's going through so many clones, we're starting to run out. So maybe that is a beat that Kirby was planning to play at some direction or was thinking at least uh, about that. But that would be a way to get around that dramatic issue of that, of the undercutting of the drama, that uploading and just cloning a new version of your lead character brings to the story. Remember that this was 35 plus years ago and the concept of the singularity? Well, certainly not well known if it had been developed at all. But Kirby was onto that concept very early. I'm sure this had probably hit science fiction prose before, but I don't know how prevalent it was in comic books. Again, this idea of uploading your consciousness, creating a new body, downloading those questions of, of personhood, etc. 
that have been so popular the last decade or two. I don't know if those had made much impact in the comic book genre yet, and yet, there it is. 1981, 1982 in Captain Victory. I really liked the way the storyline in the first issue happened, where we start in outer space, introducing us to the lightning lady and the insectons. By the way, insectons, great name for an evil alien race. And then we get the cliffhanger at the end, when he learns that Earth is the next target. Maybe we could have seen it coming, but not necessarily. This was the era of Star Wars and other space operas. It was possible that this series would take place just out there. But turning it back, bringing it back to Earth, dramatic move. I also want to point out that at this point, Jack Kirby was in his mid-60s. And yes, his pace had slowed a bit. This comic came out every two months but the imagination was as strong and fertile as it ever was. You know, I actually mentioned that pace, but for all I know, he, he may have been still doing animation work as, as well, so maybe his productivity had not slipped all that much. Now, I'm here in my early 50s, and if in a decade or so from now, I can be as productive, creative, and imaginative as Kirby was here, if he can be not at his peak, I'm not saying that about Kirby, but if I can be as close to my peak creativity in a dozen years as he was at this time to his creative peak, I'll be very satisfied. We obviously have to address Jack Kirby's art style. As I've said many times before, comic books are, to me, story first and art second, a distant second, if I'm honest. I cannot tell the difference between most comic book artists when Paul Spitaro and some of the, the guys on Back to the Bins start talking about seeing the work of a specific uncredited inker on one page or something like that. I have no idea what they're talking about. I just can't see it. So as a result, art has to be wildly different to capture my eye. Very extreme. And Kirby fits into that definition. So I love his work. It's so extreme, so different that I notice it. And I really like it. Uh, at the time, I wonder if this was considered throwback or out of date, because it is his classic 60s, 70s style. And by the early 80s, was that considered you know, passe? I, I don't know. But I like to think of it more as being timeless. It's his style. And in terms of his style, he kills it here. Two specific designs I need to mention. Mastermind is a big egg-shaped thing in a containment suit. Not the first character Kirby ever created with this general look, but it's a great look. Also, the Lightning Lady. More specifically, her hair. Think Crystal or Medusa or even Sue Storm on a lesser scale. That perfectly round globe of hair, it is so distinctly Kirby and here he cranks it up to 11. Awesome. I love it. Now, Jack Kirby's weaknesses, let's be honest, his weakness has always been the specifics of his scripting, dialogue. And that is not as strong here as it could be. The narrations are overwritten, and I think probably even overwritten for 1981. But the overall story is so good, the pacing, the plotting, and the world is so cool and fill the characters. So compelling, the villains and the hive stuff, so cool. 
that I didn't mind any weaknesses the book may have had in those other areas. The verdict on Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers 1-3. through three, If you love Jack Kirby, you will love these. If you like Jack Kirby, you'll like these. And if you don't like Jack Kirby, well, I think there's help you can get with your problems. I fit into the first category, so these books are 100% definite quarter bin deals. But that does not wrap up our coverage of Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. Let's take another break here. And when we come back, for the first time ever in a bold, dramatic move, we'll be heading back to the quarter bin. And then beyond the quarter bin. Are you a student wizard looking for hands-on job experience? Has your dark master tasked you with retrieving a magical artifact? Are you a kobold in need of legal representation? Are you having issues with an uppity horse who just needs a good punch in the face? Contact the Von Demos Adventuring Syndicate! We have been foretold. Improvised Weapons is an actual play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons podcast featuring comedians and improvisers in the great state of Vermont. Listen wherever podcasts are found. Follow us on social media at IWVTCast and laugh along to the antics of the Von Demos Adventuring Syndicate. Now, let's hit it and crit it. And we're back, again, briefly, when I was at the Akron Comic Con last year, flipping through the wonderful rows of quarter bins there, maybe 25 long boxes worth, I found four, count them, four issues of Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. Because they were consecutive, I decided that I just wanted to go officially with one through three as far as what I'd cover here. But I wanted to give some mention, some limited coverage at least, to the other quarter book that I picked up from this series. The cover of issue six by Jack Kirby and Michael Thibodeau shows a stylized picture of Captain Victory evidently screaming in agony. And we are told that whether fighting for planets or peanuts, Victory is Sacrifice. The story in issue 6, Victory is Sacrifice, was created, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Mike Thibodeau, and lettered by Palia Jensen. We begin this issue in media res, probably picking up from where issue 5 left off. Captain Victory is battling a ferocious-looking insecton. He is still in Spartanville, but we learn that the Insectons have also established a hive across the country in Philadelphia. Captain Victory has been gravely injured at some point, apparently having lost an eye. The battles are not going well. This is the night of the Insectons. They're like an angry sea whipping itself into a raging, murderous storm. We have a nice scene of Captain Victory suiting up inside the Dreadnought and activating a huge energy drainer. 
these scenes give Kirby an opportunity to go, well, to go full Kirby in his design and drafting. This drains the life of all the insectons in Spartanville, which is now devoid of human life totally. In a very neat wink-wink moment, one of the rangers refers to this draining of life energy into Captain Victory as anti-death. And I'm not completely sure what happens in the final pages, except that maybe Captain Victory pulls all of the life of the insectons into himself, lifts off Earth, and somewhere between the moon and Mars explodes. They're gone, a woman on the bridge of the Dreadnought says. War is horrible, horrible. Clavis agrees, and victory is sacrifice. Victory is indeed sacrifice. But in the case of Captain Victory, sacrifice is also continuity. In the last panel, Clavis instructs the medical team to proceed with a Captain Victory clone. And we're told that they'll need him to trap the Wonder Warriors. And Shag, you're going to need to sit down for this. And Stella, I hope you're not listening. Because going through the... Even saying this makes my skin crawl, but going through the dollar bins recently? Probably at Journey Into Comics? I found another issue of this series. So solely as a bonus, and not part of the official quarter bin coverage, I'm going to talk about that fifth book that I bought from this title, the one I paid four quarters for. But don't worry, I'll be brief. The cover of issue seven, by Jack Kirby, shows Captain Victory, at least his head in one hand, hovering above, seemingly reaching out. Below him are a crazy quartet of Kirby-designed, colorful alien beings. The cover copy tells us this. Something as large as a galaxy opens like a cosmic eye and produces the terrors known as the Wonder Warriors. The story in issue 7, The Wonder Warriors, was created, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby, inked by Michael Thibodeau, and lettered by Palia Jensen. Captain Victory is back! Or at least his clone is. We get the idea here that cloning is pretty rare still, as a member of his crew says it's weird to suddenly confront a dead man. That little bit does add some important information, some important world-building, actually. The stuff on Earth, the battle with the Insectons, that was successful. And the Rangers are looking for what to do next. They hear a report of a monster, of a size and nature impossible to comprehend. Via viewscreen, they gaze into Quadrant X to find something gigantic, as big as four galaxies. It looks humanoid in appearance, but what in the solar soap is it? And we learn that Quadrant X offers refuge to outlaws like the four from the cover. And in consecutive, awesome splash pages, which represent holographic displays inside the Dreadnought, we meet the four 
crazily designed folk from the cover, including Paranex, the fighting fetus. Now, I thought the first four issues I read were 100% Kirby. But if that's the case, then I guess I have to say that this issue, 110% Kirby? Is that possible? Captain Victory and Mastermind have another long debate about strategy and tactics, and eventually the captain contacts his superior officer at Galactic Patrol, which does again give us a little more insight into how the patrol works. I don't think I mind the slow burn of learning about the Galactic Rangers. I'm glad we didn't just get a big info dump at the beginning of issue one. It's like Kirby had so much action and adventure that he wanted to get to that he could only just squeeze in these bits of world building and and information wherever he could fit them in around those action bits and set pieces. And that works for me. Anyway, the captain contacts Terran, a lion-looking patroller, who has been meeting with Earth scientists and military men. A bargain seems to be struck on the last page. Terran is going to stay on Earth. That's a presidential directive that sort of became a military order. And the rest of the team prepares to head off. I like that we're moving here back off of Earth, although... I mean, they do still have a tether here in Terran, so I imagine that they do come back. But I'm kind of intrigued by the scary giant thing in Quadrant X and those four crazy Wonder Warriors, which were teased on the cover and in the title of the story, but we don't actually interact with them. They appear again in this issue solely as splash pages. I mean, solely as holographic representations. Sort of their who's who pages that the Galactic Rangers take a look at. Really glad that I read all five of these issues. There are eight more in the series. It's 13 total. And I wouldn't mind picking up a few more, even if I had to pay more than a quarter. But don't tell anyone, okay? And now finally, finally, I can say that that wraps up my coverage of Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers 1 through 3, and also sort of 6, but not 7, because I paid a dollar for that one, and that coverage was just a bonus. And all that brings episode 116 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. On episode 117, we'll be looking at Flash number 52 from DC Comics, cover dated July 1991. No spoilers about the content of that issue, but that episode should be out sometime around April 15th, or as it's known here in the USA, Tax Day. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode Captain Victory, Jack the King Kirby, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen. And I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts 
Uncovering the Bronze Age, and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.